So let's begin with Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And then after, after we have read Colossians chapter 3, I'd like you to go over to Matthew chapter 9. So if you want to go ahead and, and get both of those places marked, yeah, you can put your finger in uh, Matthew chapter 9 and you can go on back to Colossians. Matthew chapter 9, we did cover it here a while back. I'm going to take Matthew chapter 9 and apply it in a little different direction than I've ever applied it before. But Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21, and then Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Are you all with me there? All right. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now over to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When Jesus saw the multitudes, the Bible tells us that, that he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering about. They were straying. They had no one to lead them. And I, and I tell you, as I watch my sheep, as I let them out of the pen and let them wander around out in the yard, it's pretty easy to see. Uh, it, it's just funny to watch them. They'll, be, get, they'll, they'll just go along eating grass, not really pay attention to what they're doing. And then all of a sudden, one of them will take off running. And the others that we don't, look, don't think that they're paying attention to what's going on with the others, all the others will see one of them take off running, and they'll all run the same way with them. There was one point in time here sometime back when they all took off running, and they ran right out into the road. One of the younger ones got hit by a car. Fortunately, other than the sheep, nothing was injured. But also often, people, are, they wander around. And, and when this happened, I was out back of the house. I had left them unattended for just a moment. And uh, sheep without a shepherd... They don't know what they need to do. They just wander about and they get themselves in a lot of trouble. Well, today, families are like sheep without a shepherd in many ways in our nation. Uh, the God-appointed leader in a lot of families is missing in action. He may be gone as in uh, distracted by other things, or he may be gone as in deployed by the military. He may be gone in just uh, many other ways other than just physical, but he is missing in action. And it's not just a physical thing. It's not just a, a thing within a family. It's also a societal problem. Our society has marginalized the role of the father. Many families have adjusted to not needing a father or a husband. Often men are simply giving up. They're saying, there's no point in me hanging around here. And they're leaving the women and the children to provide the leadership that's necessary within the family. It's not a good thing. It causes problems. Question is, what can we do? Well, Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 to 38. Look at these two verses again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. 
Jesus said that the harvest is great. The need for workers is beyond what we could even consider 30, 40, 50 years ago. There's a lot of need within the families for leadership by men. You know what it is that we need to decide? And this is something that needs to be decided not simply by the men, but it needs to be decided by the women and by the children in our families. We need to decide who is going to harvest the lives of our families. What do you mean by that? Well, when you, when you look at a harvest, when you look at a field that's ready for harvest, there is fruit that's been growing there. There's been something that's been growing. I, I went by the pecan tree at our place the other day, and I saw these nice, plump, green husk pecans up there, and I thought, boy, I tell you what, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that I can get some pecans off of that tree. I went by a few days later, and those same pecans that were up on the tree are lying on the ground, and they're busted wide open. A squirrel has harvested my pecans. He's ruined what I thought I was going to enjoy. It, it's not there anymore. Now, the question uh, that we have to decide is, is what are we going to do as husbands to protect the harvest? The harvest that we're looking for the, as families, the harvest is grown, mature children who have grown up and are living lives that are honoring God. The harvest that we've got is the fruit of our labor. Are we going to enjoy watching our children grow up to be men and women of God, or are we going to sit back and let the world harvest our children's lives and use them however Satan so deems? Jesus then, after he said that the harvest is plentiful, said, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first thing that we have to do is we need to pray for God-given leaders of our families to agree to take their place in our homes and in our families. We have to pray for God-given leaders, the men of our families, to agree that it's their place, that they need to lead their families, they need to honor God, and we need to pray that they'll step up, we'll step up and do it. And uh, then after that... We need to provide guidance so that men can lead their families with God's directions. We need to provide guidance so that men can lead their families with God's direction. You know, one of the most terrible things that's going on in our land in the last hundred years is ignorance of the Bible. The Bible is so full of truth and wisdom on leading a family, and yet it is, it is ignored by so much of the society. Even people within the church are not able to, to, to come and just tell you what godly wisdom is about raising a family. That's one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about just continuing slowly through the scriptures to make sure that people get the idea. We have read Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, about five weeks in a row here. Over and over again, we've been reading that same passage of Scripture. You know what? Just by hearing it repetitiously, it's going to begin to catch on. You ever catch yourself singing a tune or, or saying something? You're wondering, where did I get that from? Well, I hope that that's not the only way that you get the Scriptures. But, but we're going to continue to. And, and today, as we look to the message, we're going to provide guidance so that men can lead their families with God's direction. And we're going to seek after men... We're going to seek after leaders who lead from character. We're going to look for men. We're going to help, I hope, train men to lead from character. That doesn't mean women can't get anything out of this because we all have some kind of leadership, and we all need to lead. Today we're going to look at the characteristics of a man, though, who leads to love, which is the title of the message, Leading to Love. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Head back towards Colossians. Drive on past Colossians and come to 1 Timothy. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3, this passage primarily deals with the qualifications of the leadership of the local church. But last winter, as we prepared for the uh, hunting trip that the men were going on, the men were going to, to shoot deer. I was going to trap men. I'll be honest with you, I'm not overly interested in, in deer hunting. As long as H-E-B's got beef and I can afford it, I won't be doing a whole lot of deer hunting. Now, if it gets to where I can't afford the beef at H-E-B, I'll be out deer hunting again. <laughs> but I will take the opportunity to go with men who are willing to deer hunt and dig into the scriptures. While we were up there on the uh, hunting trip last winter, we looked at these same seven verses that we're going to look at today over a period of four days. And then we spent eight hours driving back for Wheeler, finishing up the last couple because we, it's not that we didn't spend time. We spent many hours. In fact, the first night on the hunting trip, I had to look at the guys and said, guys, are you going hunting later on this morning? Because it had passed midnight. I said, if you are, you need to go to bed. <laughs> and then we took up the scriptures the next day. But we're looking at the qualifications of the leadership within the church. And if these are the qualifications of men who are to lead the church, I ask the question, why would they not also apply to the leaders of our families? If these are the qualifications of men, if this is what required of them before they can be overseers or leaders within the church, then why should these not be the same qualifications that apply to our families? And when I get through today, you can, you can tell me if you think that these are not the right qualifications. God has ordained the husband to be the overseer of the family. God has ordained the husband to be the overseer of the family. And since the church is a family of God, and God has given us clear qualifications for the leadership in His family, He's called us to imitate Him in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, then it would seem that these characteristics should be do well in defining the husband. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's look at these passages a little bit slower. We're going to start with verse 2 here. Verse 2, a bishop, an overseer. Would you see that word bishop? That, that word, the Greek word, could translate overseer, literally. Uh, overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. Verse 2 packs in a lot of information there. First thing it says that an overseer must be blameless. An overseer must be blameless. He must be above reproach. An overseer must be above reproach. He must be a man whose character is so, so strong, a man whose character is so driven by God that he will not be approached and said, hey, You've been doing this, or you've been doing that. There shouldn't be any gossip that's able to stick to him because he's a man of character. You say, well, you know, none of us are blameless. No, we aren't, not in our own. 
But in Christ Jesus, we are new creations. We've been born again. We've been given everything that we need for peace and a godliness. We've been given all that we need to live a life that honors God. And as husbands, we ought to strive for that. We ought to strive for living a life that is honoring to God. Second thing he says, he must be the husband of one wife. Literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. For years, the church used this verse right here to say that no man who was divorced could be a pastor. And you know, to this day, I think you ought to look closely at the circumstances about it. But what, what the verse is telling us in a literal way is that a man has to have his heart, his mind, and his soul set on one woman. A guy who's married to uh, one woman and he's seeking after another woman or he's got lust in his heart or he's reading a bunch of pornography or whatever that, that's not a one-woman man. That's a man whose heart is divided. He needs to have his heart set on one woman and he needs to be a man who recognizes that the woman is a gift from God, not every woman, but your own wife, and that therefore he should honor God and honor his wife by being a man whose heart and mind and soul is set on the one woman that God's given him. The next thing he says there is he needs to be temperate. Temperate's a word we don't use a whole lot in our vocabulary today, but temperate means able to control oneself. He needs to be able to control himself. Now, you can apply that in a lot of areas. A man that, that, that can't get himself out of bed and go to work, he doesn't know how to control himself. He's not temperate. A man who doesn't know how to control the finances in his family so that he overspends, that man's not temperate. A man who uh, doesn't know how to avoid alcoholic beverages that would cause him to get drunk, that's a man who's not showing self-control. All of these things can cause problems. But you know what? There's other ways we can be out of self-control. The guy who eats 10 pounds of sausage balls fresh off of the stove. I could have done that yesterday if it hadn't been for a little self-control. Man who's going to spend 8 or 10 hours sitting in front of a television set watching football games or whatever instead of spending time with his family. That's not self-control. And then we can go on and on and on. You can just pick a vice, any vice. Guy who spends his whole life out in the garage working on cars. All of these things. It's not self-control. The next thing he says to us, we need to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. That doesn't mean don't be drunk. That means you need to be clear-thinking. To be sober-minded means to be clear-thinking. Now, that being sober does help you to be sober-minded. Need to be clear thinking. Need to have their mind clear so that they can think properly, so that they can evaluate the situation. There's a passage that I didn't understand in the scriptures for the longest time, but the more I thought about it, it just made good sense. He said, to walk circumspectly in the world around you. That word circumspectly kind of tripped me up. That's not a word we use very often. But circumspectly means walk in a way where you're aware of what's going on around you within your life. What's in the all around you? And if you've got a clear mind, if, if you've got a clear thinking perspective, then you're able to do that. If your mind is clear, and it's not just clear from narcotics or from drugs, but clear from the worries of the day. The Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. When we're thinking clearly, when we're, when we're not anxious when we're trusting God, it makes it so much easier to think clearly. Now, 
Next thing I want you to notice is he says to be well-behaved. He says, of good behavior. Literally is what he says there. We need to be well-behaved. We need to be respectable. We need to live lives that people aren't going to look and say, whoa, look at that guy. He's obviously doesn't know how to act in public. Though as children, we may have acted that way. As adults, we shouldn't. And I've been around, and I have been in some days whenever I was running from God, that guy that didn't know how to behave well. And we shouldn't be that way. We ought to be respectable. Hospitable. Hospitable is the next thing that he tells us. We need to know how to be kind to strangers and to guests. Our house should be open for people, but not just our house, but our lives. When we think of hospitality, it's not just a matter of allowing somebody into the presence of your dwelling, but to allow somebody into the presence of your life. We can treat people in a manner that makes them feel comfortable around us. We can treat people in a manner that makes them to be drawn to us. And gentlemen, I can tell you right now, it's real easy for us as men to put up a wall that keeps our children, keeps our families from coming up to us. And for us to be not just uh, unhospitable to strangers, but to make our families strangers if we're not careful. And we shouldn't do that. We ought to be open and ready to hear, ready to reach out, ready to help, ready to uh, be of an assistance to people. Not so much that our entire life is caught up with things outside of our home. Remember, we have to begin first at the house. We need to begin with our own family. But we need to be ready to see what it is that God would have us to be involved with. After that, he says they need to be able to teach. To be able to teach. If you're going to be able to teach, you need to be knowledgeable and you need to be patient. You can't teach something you don't know. You may be able to lead a study that you know nothing about if you can follow the notes that somebody else has provided. But to truly teach something, to teach something to the point where it's going to make a difference in people's lives, you've got to know it yourself. You've got to know what it is that you're doing. And then the second thing is you need to be patient. As I take these Greek classes, I'm reminded of my algebra class in high school. The only class I ever made a D in in my life in high school or in any of my uh, schooling was algebra. I had this lady who could stand up on the board and she could rattle off algebraic equations like it was just a, a new language to her. I mean, it was like it was her native language, I should say. But to me, she was speaking in a foreign tongue. It made no sense whatsoever to me. How can two plus N equal anything. I don't know how a number and a letter can be added together and come up with an answer. It would be two N to me, which was actually two times N. <laughs> that woman had no patience. She had knowledge, but no patience. Patience. Being patient until the lesson is not just taught, but learned. Sometimes we have to teach it over and over again. Need to be able to teach. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness. Not covetous. He says not given to wine. Now, I would like God to have written in there not given at all to alcoholic beverage. But he said not given to literally or alcoholic beverage. I looked at this in the Greek and it doesn't say Oinos, it's a word for alcohol or for strong drink here. Literally, not a drunkard would be a way to put it. He says, literally, not a drunkard. 1 Timothy 3, 3. 
Not to be a drunkard. Does it mean that you can't drink any? No. No. Though I advise to abstain, alcohol causes more problems than families. The things that tore me up when I was in Lampasa serving as pastor there was the amount of alcoholism that was in the family, the amount of young kids who were able to get a hold of alcoholic beverage because it was just freely uh, left around to where they could get a hold of it, the damage that's done in their lives. They had a saying over there in Lampasas that just drove me crazy, made me so mad I wanted to, to spit. They said, kids drink, kids drive, kids die. That's just the way it is. And I screamed, do something about it. Do something about it. And how do we do that? We set the example. We set the example. I saw my dad drink a beer one time. I don't know what brought him to do that, but I was riding with him in the car. He was with a friend of his. This was way back in the 1960s. And uh, he was drinking a beer. And, he, and I said, what are you drinking there? And he said, I'm drinking a beer. And uh, I said, can I have some? And he gave me it, and I took a little sip of it and spit it on the floor of the car. I said, this stuff's nasty. Why would anybody want to drink it? Never saw him drinking other than that one time. He set an example. Next thing he tells us, though, is not violent. You notice how drunkenness and violence goes together so well? Not violence, not abusive in any manner, not a bully. We hear all the stuff going on in the news media today about bullying, and I'm telling you they're using it to warp it and pervert it, to use it for the perverse uh, behavioral activities that people want to get away with. But God has not called us to be a bully. He's called us to be gentle. He's called us not to be quarrelsome. He's told, called us to live in a manner that is not abusive to others. He's called us to live in a courteous and peaceful manner. And husbands, we ought to do that. We shouldn't bully our wives. We shouldn't bully our children. We shouldn't bully our neighbors. We shouldn't bully anybody. We should not be getting in fights, which is a tough one sometimes. We need to be gentle. Now, I'd like to spend some time talking about that word gentle because that's not, you can't replace that word with wimpy. It doesn't mean wimpy. It doesn't mean effeminate. It means having a touch that doesn't damage others. Not greedy for money. Not covetous. 